If you have your Bibles, please take them out. Take them out. I won't do a check like a teacher does, checking, do you have your book, do you have your homework? No, none of that. But um, before I get going, I want to ask us a few questions. Perhaps um, the first question is this. Have you found yourself over the years, we are all fairly mature, um, reading these self-help books? Maybe we've read these motivational books that are out there. They're in their thousands that have been sold. Um, these books have great ideas. They have great principles. And we are often motivated to read these th- books. Why? So that we can learn and try implement some of those things in our lives. And as we implement these things in our lives, hopefully... What the result of those who have written these things was would be true for us. Any any of you done that? I'll be the first one to put my hand up. Many a times, lots of books that I try and read, and ah, oh, he's a successful person. I want to understand. But the question I have for us is: Remember, the Word of God says that we are set apart. We are different. We are in the world, but not of the world. It's nothing wrong with reading these books. There's nothing wrong with getting these principles. There's nothing wrong with learning what we can learn from people who have gone before us. But what sets us as children of God apart? What makes you and I different to those who write these books, who who do not know God, who are not set apart in the way that we understand? What makes us different, you and I, child of God? And the answer is simple, and we all know it. The answer is that Christ lives in us. The hope of glory lives in us. And he has written the most incredible motivational book that you would ever get, for lack of a better uh, description, motivational book, self-help book, the best that you will ever, ever get. The Bible, the word of the living God. Well, what makes it different? What makes this living word, I'll give you a clue there, um, different to the motivational books that we read? There's many self-help Books that have many good principles. What makes the, this most incredible book different? What makes it different? The Word is living. Did you, someone say that? The Word is alive. I know maybe if you're skeptical, if you haven't been serving Christ for a while, you might be thinking... Uh, That's a little bit uh, uh, interesting. How can this book be alive? It's just words in a page, in a book. How can it be alive? Well, this book tells us in John 17, 17, that it is truth. So everything that is written in this book is truth. And we would do well to read the truth of God. Motivational books are good and some truths found in there, but there are lots of principles and lots of theories that we don't necessarily 
find aligned with our lifestyle, with where we find ourselves. But they are still good principles. But this book is alive. It is truth. This book is powerful. Again, you might be asking yourself, okay, well, that's cool. <laughs> it's powerful. It's still a book. I don't see it uh, kind of coming alive. It, I don't see it happening. Why? Why do I say it's powerful? Why do I say it's alive and it is the truth? Why do I say that? And how is that? Well, the answer is because the almighty God has exalted this word, this book, beyond, uh, above his name. How is that? God the Almighty. We know we're speaking about he reigns. We're speaking about his name. We are singing and, and, and glorifying him because we understand the truth. But he says in his word in Psalm 138 that he has exalted this book, this word, above his name. And what, which name do we pray to? Which name do we call on, on to? The name that's above all other names. The name that holds all power. Yet God says in, in Psalm that he has placed his word above his name. It makes me wonder how powerful this word is. It makes me realize how real and how important it is for us to understand that this is a living word. Now, the word, this word also says, where you speak life or death. Your confession of faith brings life or death. When you speak over your children, you either speak in life or you speak in death. When you speak into your wife, to your husband, to your beloved, to your, to your colleagues, you either speak in life or you speak in death. This book is incredible. And so this morning, with that background, with that understanding that we read this word of God, this power, it's alive, it brings a lot of meaning and stuff that we don't understand, brings it to light. He also says that it's, it's, it's like a double-edged sword. It, re- it goes between bone and marrow, reaching those deepest parts that no man can, only his word can also says that he is the one who is able to turn a callous heart, a heart of stone, to a heart of flesh. How is that possible? We don't see Christ. We don't, uh, he's not here with us physically, but he's here with us through his word. So with that background and backdrop, we find ourselves reading this. Holy Word. So Philippians 2 verse 1. Philippians 2 verse 1. I remember as I read, God is here, His Spirit is here, He's uh, equipping us, He's sharpening our uh, uh, thinking, he, He's showing us things that we haven't seen before. And He trusts that His Word will continue shaping our, our thinking, our lifestyles. Says this in Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, another translation puts it this way. Therefore, 
If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Verse 1 to 4 of this, of, of chapter 2, we find Paul, con- we will see that he will continue to call the church. Remember, he's writing to the church in Philippi. And he continues to call them to live in a harmonious harmony. English, yeah, harmony. Harmony. He calls them to live in a way of harmony. (laughs) Um, But now we see how we will see that he emphasizes, or the emphasis shifts from harmony to fellowship. But within the fellowship, there has to be harmony. To have a sweet fellowship, we have to be in in harmony with each other. So Paul points out and he he shifts his thinking in this way. Um, He says that harmony needs to be our ground basis. Of course, Jesus Christ is our foundation. And out of that foundation, there's lots of things that he throws at us that we need to grab onto and implement in our lives. Remember those self-help books? Those principles that they say, you must uh, have a, uh, you know, a routine in your life and it will bring this kind of result. So God says that uh, through my word, which is alive, I've given it to you. Take those principles that I've given you, implement them in your life, and you will see the result of those principles. So Paul tries to encourage us, or the Philippian church, with that. He deals with motivation for unity. Without unity, we cannot be in harmony. Now, this whole, you, you will see as we go on in chapter 2, most of chapter 2 speaks about Christ's humility. For us to be um, in harmony, for us to be uh, united, for us to have the same thought pattern, one has to be humble. It's times where I think I know more than you that I've got to drop myself and, and actually listen to you. It's when, I, when you think um, you know more than me that you need to actually subject yourself, put yourself down and allow for me to share. And together there will be, there will be unity. Remember God says that he opposes those who are proud. He opposes those who are, those who are proud. Yet those who are proud, it's him who gave um, them the ability to know those things that make him make them proud, yet we hold it above him. In um, in Michael Eaton's um, commentary, he writes the the kind of the subheading of this uh, of chapter two. He says it's an appeal for unity. So Paul appeals for unity within the to the Philippian church, the church at Philippi. Together, remember he's writing to the, those who are saved. We dealt with the fact that there were people who were preaching the word of God with incorrect motives in chapter 1. Paul did not labor too much on them and say, no, they must be cursed. No, he said, let us continue as long as the word of God is being preached. Don't bother too much about them and how they're going about what, what their motives are. As long as the word of God is being preached, he says, let's continue. The, the church in Philippi had many, many enemies. It had many, many difficulties. There was much hostility from the surrounding pagan world. 
yet there was another danger. So for us, perhaps there's unity. Perhaps for the Christian uh, us here found in, in the 21st century, there might be different uh, united. Maybe there's a little bit of disunity somewhere. But Paul says, okay, there's unity here, but there's something even bigger that could uh, come and um, mess up this unity that he's talking about. There was another danger, and that danger, he says, was division in the fellowship. Pride in the fellowship. Perhaps self-centeredness in the fellowship. So we're together, but I'm proud. Yet I want to act as though we are united. We're together, but I have self, I'm self-centered. And that brings division. So Paul addresses this and he encourages the church in Philippi. Yes, we need unity, but there are some things. We've got enemies coming from the outside. The pagan world, he says, we need to stand together. We need to hold fast to what we believe. The God of the universe. We need to understand that this book, as I said, is alive and is real and is powerful. If we don't believe that, we will be divided. I will walk out of there into the, the world and I'll say, oh, this book is exciting, bloody, bloody, blah. I'm allowed to say that. I just did. Uh, but it's, 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 uh, then you walk out of there and you're like, uh, I, don't quite, I don't quite believe what um, the word says. It, uh, that is, the word is alive. Already there's some sort of uh, disunity. Maybe there's a bit of division there because you and I don't agree. Paul says we need to be united. We need to be united. So he develops the point in verse 1. See, there's a huge difference between union and unity. Right? Huge difference between union and unity. Two people get married. Hooray! That is union. But not necessarily unity. Do you believe that? We get married. That is union but not necessarily unity. Two churches merge. Two churches come together, but there may not be unity either. They come with the different principles, I come with my different principles, but we merge. doesn't necessarily mean that we are united. That is union, not necessarily unity. If we tie two cats, take the tails and tie and Call them on the clothesline. And <laughs> that's quite funny. But I mean, that is not... <laughs> that is indeed disaster. That, that is, um, um, uh, is a union by the tails. But it's not unity. It is not unity. And this is what happens with our Christian world. With families. Families merge. Doesn't necessarily mean that there's unity. Two different kinds of families come together. Doesn't mean that there's unity. It's a union. Doesn't mean that there's unity. Unity has to do with healthy relationship, relationships, not structure. Unity has to do with healthy relationships, not structure. So how healthy are your relationships? How healthy is your relationship with your husband or your wife? 
How healthy is your relationship with your family, your children? How healthy are your relationships within the church? This church and out there. A mechanical union is a phantom. It is a, it is a figment of the imagination. It's mechanical. It's not real. We can act as though we're united, but it's not real. It is a counterfeit. It, it is almost fake. It's not a real thing. I'm going on about this thing about union and unity. Paul speaks about imitating Christ, humility, as we live in this world. Now, in this uh, scripture, uh, the word if, you'll see if, I-F, occurs four times in verse 1. Each if deals with a motivation for unity. In each if is an entitlement every believer possesses at the point of salvation. Every believer, whether you've been walking uh, with Christ for many years or not, there's an entitlement that you possess the day that you got saved. Paul appealed to unity based on, on four fringe benefits every Christian enjoys at salvation. Do you, my brothers and sisters, do you guys realize that there's some fringe benefits that is uh, upon you, upon your life, because you are saved. Because of the song we sang this morning, once I was blind, but now I am, I can see. I was lost, but now I'm found. Paul's if is a logical if. He does not mean that there, uh, there's any doubt in the matter. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there certainly is, Then make my joy complete, he says. He is referring to four things that are certainly true of Christians. So Paul starts here in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, another translation to make it uh, understandable for those who are not like me, uh, very well versed in English. Uh, Therefore, if... You have any encouragement from being united with Christ. That's how I start off. The therefore points us back to verse um, 27 of chapter 1, where it said that we are to stand, that you're to stand fast in one spirit, united in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. For the faith of the gospel. If we are not in one spirit, if we are not striving together, it will be difficult for us to walk together. For a husband and wife who are not united, it is hard for them to walk. It's, I mean, I've heard it uh, preached or said that a, a, a believer should not marry a non-believer. There are principles in the Bible as to why you shouldn't do that. But the one thing that um, I just want to highlight with that is you think about you are saved. Your wife or your husband is not saved. You want to give generously as God is generous. But your husband says, 
Give to what are you what are you talking about? <laughs> Give to who? Give to who? You are not in agreement. That's always going to be a, a, an issue. This is why unity is important. Husband and wife agree, and when we agree, we move together, striving together, striving together. The four ifs in verse one all mean sins. They are statements of fact. All four grounds of appeal base their challenges on some fact that is true of the Christian. And their argument rests on our divine provision. So the first appeal to divine certainty is our consolation in Christ. That's the first appeal. It is the encouragement we get by being united to Christ. The truth is that there is encouragement in our union with Christ. There actually, if anything, there's encouragement in our union to Christ. By being saved, there's encouragement in itself. This is a positional truth. It's the truth. When God looks down on us, He sees us in, He sees Christ in us. He sees us in Christ. He sees Christ in us. That's a positional truth. We hold the same status quo as Jesus Christ in God's eye. In God's eyes. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ had eternal life. Therefore, we have eternal life. We will one day rise and be in glory. One day we will die and we will be present with Jesus Christ. Same for what happened with with Jesus. He had eternal life means we have eternal life. Jesus Christ had perfect righteousness. Therefore, we too have perfect righteousness. Do you believe that? It's hard for me to believe it. I have perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. This is a judicial or forensic righteousness. It is true of us regardless of our experiences. These are the truths, the principles of God's word. This word that is alive. And it is not based on our experience or experiences. What or our feelings. How we thought today I feel good. It's not based on that. Or tomorrow I feel bad. It's based on the position that Jesus is in our lives. What he has done on the, on the cross. There's consolation. There's motivation and encouragement in that. Just knowing that. Just knowing that we have fringe benefits by being united to Christ. That in itself is an encouragement in itself. Unity is a byproduct of our oneness with Christ. Unity is a byproduct of our oneness with Christ. If our status quo in Christ does not appeal to us, 
There may be no life in Christ at all. There may be no genuine contact with Christ at all. Or a believer may be so spiritually dead that he or she does not respond to what Christ has done for him or her. We're so spiritually callous, as it were, that we don't respond and realize and appreciate the things that God has done, the things that Jesus Christ has done. When we look at, when you sing about the cross of Jesus Christ, when you think about the story, when you read that through his most holy and living word, what does it do to your heart? What does it do to your mind, your intellect? What does it do? For you and I, there is encouragement in Christ. There is encouragement by being united with Christ. We cannot begin to live this Christian life until we have persuaded, we have been persuaded that we can do so. You cannot live this Christian life unless you are convinced you can do so. And the convincing doesn't come from me or the next person. I may be used to, to help you. You may be used to help me. The convincing comes from the Holy Spirit. comes from God himself. He's the one who tells you, Actually, you can do that. Actually, Marisa, I've given you a gift and a talent, and you can do it. I'm I'm at it, and I might encourage you, or vice versa, but it's actually God, by His Spirit, in us. He lives in us. He, He encourages us. He encourages us. He exhorts us. He the exhortation. He, 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 brings it, he makes it alive in, in us. We read the word of God and we think, oh, I don't understand, maybe it's a little bit boring. Man, when you spend time with him and saying, God, show me the word, it becomes alive. And it cannot come alive because of your preconceived ideas. It becomes alive because of the Holy Spirit, God himself in us, working in and through us. See, the secret of the Christian life Can I give it to you? The secret of living this Christian life is to know who you and I are in Christ. To know our true identity. Son and daughter of the Most High King. When you know who you are, man, you can can do anything. And of course, that anything is not one that goes against his principles, his words. It's things that bring him glory. Things that bring him glory. Who, when you know who you are, you realize the gifts, the talents, the family, the environment, the place he's placed you at. is not a mistake. There's a purpose. There's a plan. Because you're his and he's bought you, and his word says he's bought you at a price. You have died to the rule of sin. Do you believe that? I have died to the rule of sin. Before I was saved, I was not dead. Sin ruled over me. Now Jesus is in me, and sin cannot rule over me. Sin is no longer reigning over us. 
We are alive to God because we are united to Jesus Christ. Since we are in Christ in this way, we are able to rejoice amidst every situation, every circumstance, everything that goes wrong or goes right, we are still able to rejoice. Does not change God's character. Does not change the fact that He's good. Does not change the fact that He's he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Despite what's going on, despite our feelings, does not change who He is. And that's a, a positional truth that we need to hold on to. You know, I heard I once heard a preacher. I could I try to understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am different from what I was an hour ago, maybe even half an hour ago. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I could not get my mind around that until this preacher expanded the word and and and, and opened it up and said, God. The reason why part of the reason why he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is because God exists in a a realm where time does not exist. So for you, yesterday came, we're growing uh, older, we're becoming more mature, but God is the same. That's why his word would say, a thousand years or a thousand days is the same as one day in his courts. Because he exists outside of time. There's no limitation with his time. That's why he says that he has been where you're going. Philippians 2, 1. Ephesians 2.10, I think it is. He has foreordained stuff for you. He has gone ahead and prepared works for you and I to walk into. How can he go ahead of time? Because time does not exist in his uh, in, in his realm. He's over it all. But that kind of just helped me understand that you know, this is the God that I serve. He is not bound by time like you and I are. He's the same yesterday because yesterday is today and today is tomorrow and tomorrow is yesterday. It does, it, it, it make, it's all the same. It, it brought an understanding that I did not have before. Since we are in Christ... In this way, we are able to rejoice through all circumstances. We are able to live for God. How encouraging is that? We are able to live for God. The believer has a status quo before God God that is equivalent to that of Jesus Christ. There is comfort and motivation in that, in that truth. We have the same status quo with God because of Christ in us. The question that I have for you this morning, my dear brothers and sisters, do you live your Christian life To gain the approbation or favor of God. Do you live your life to try and gain something from God? Try and gain uh, merit, favor, approbation. Hey, do you live for that? Do you live like that? Or do you live out your Christian life based on the provisions Christ has made for us?
Since Christ is kind, are you kind? Since Christ is loving, are you loving? Since he is generous, are you generous? Since Christ is gracious, are you gracious? Since Christ is compassionate, are you compassionate? Since Christ is slow to anger, are you slow to anger? Since Christ is faithful, are you faithful? Good questions to ponder on. But admittedly, we cannot exhibit these characters. We cannot exhibit these characters if we are not continually yielding to the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit's help in us, we are dead in the water, as they say. We can try and try, but it will just prove to be futile. We need to allow Him, the giver of life, the one who can help us to refrain from being angry, the one who can help us to be generous, Him, the Holy Spirit. But we need to remember that because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, the Almighty King, and we have the same status quo before God that is equivalent to Jesus Christ, we are not alone. It is not impossible. We can do it. We can do it. We can be loving. We can be generous. We can be gracious. We can be compassionate. We can be slow to anger. And we certainly can be faithful. And of course, those, all these things are proved true and real toward each other. It's one thing to say, I'm all of those things before God. <laughs> but the truth is, are you, am I all those things before you? And are you those things before me? Father, thank you for the principles that you've given us through your word. Thank you, Lord, that we do have the same status quo as your son, Jesus. And as we yield to you, Holy Spirit, you will help us to live up what your word says, that you are transforming us into the image and likeness of you, Jesus Christ, daily, daily, where we have Shut the doors, we ask God that you'd show us, and then you help us, Father, to open those doors again. So that you, God, can shape us and change us and transform us into the image and likeness of your Son. And in all of that, God, may this life for, uh, for my friends, for me, bring glory to your most holy name. If anything remains, God, may I be found one who brings glory to you. In Jesus' strong and mighty name I pray. Amen.